Have you ever wondered why there are so few songs about the Holy Spirit? If you look at the subject index of a hymnal, you'll see that there's lots of things about Jesus, lots of things about His work, very few things about the Holy Spirit. There's a good reason for that. It's a good thing. The reason is that Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come and He would not testify about Himself, John 16, but rather He would not speak on His own authority. He'll speak, he, whatever He hears, He will speak and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, Jesus said, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. The ministry of the Holy Spirit <clears throat> to the church and to the world is to testify to the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Christ. So on this Pentecost Sunday, as we think about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, just know that while there is one God existing in three persons, each of the persons of the Godhead have different roles. And the role of the Holy Spirit is to exalt God the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, this morning, <clears throat> we may get to the text. We might. But I have promised for several weeks now that I would talk about the sign gifts and whether they exist today or not. And I've decided that this is the Sunday that we're going to do that. And so we may end up with a sermon being entirely introduction. <laughs> um, our statement of faith here at East White Oak Bible Church says this about the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Holy Spirit is a person. It's not a thing, not an it, not an influence. It's a person. The Holy Spirit, He is a person who convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, and He is the supernatural agent in regeneration, baptizing all believers into the body of Christ, indwelling and sealing them unto the day of redemption. We believe He's the divine teacher who guides believers into all truth, and that it is the privilege and duty of all the saved to be filled with the Spirit. We believe that God is sovereign in the bestowment of all His gifts, and that the gifts of evangelists, pastors, and teachers are sufficient for the perfecting of the saints today, and that speaking in tongues and the working of sign miracles gradually ceased as the New Testament Scriptures were completed and their authority became established. We believe that God does hear and answer the prayer of faith in accord with His own will for the sick and afflicted. And so this morning... As we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where Paul is going to talk a little bit about prophecy and tongues, it's important to introduce all of that with this topic, the cessation of the sign gifts. Now, immediately when we say cessation of sign gifts, there's going to be people that say, does this mean that we don't believe in the supernatural? Or that we believe that God doesn't work today? Nothing could be further from the truth. We believe that God is at work today and that there are supernatural things that are happening all over the globe. But what we want to talk about is whether or not these particular gifts, that we'll talk about what they are in a minute, ceased in the early church. 
Now, back in chapter 12, verse 2, Paul is kind of giving a little bit of a heads up here. He's saying that the Corinthians, when they were pagans, they were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. And so, what he's concerned about is the way in which paganism has continued to infiltrate their thinking and even their worship. Paganism, the worship of the idols at Corinth, is dictating kind of how they are worshiping the true and living God. So, for example, in the Corinthian pantheon of gods, there were all kinds of quote-unquote non-language utterances being spoken. In the mystery religions, Sibeli and Addis, Dionysianism, the religion of Apollo, there were all kinds of people speaking unintelligibly and not any actual language, but they were just giving utterances with their mouths. In fact, this is a phenomenon that's known all over the world in all kinds of religions, that people will make these kinds of uh, utterances in their using their uh, voices, but not actually having any particular speech attached to it. One linguist notes when all the features of these phenomena are taken into consideration, and they go into uh, this linguist goes into all kinds of little details like segmental structure, supersegmental elements. There's no distinction between these utterances of non Christian pagan religions and those that are attempted to be practiced by many who claim to be Christians. This linguist concludes that this is actually a learned behavior, learned either unawarely or sometimes consciously, and others have pointed out that if you go to places where speaking in tongues is a matter of practice, you'll even see little tracks or booklets teaching you how to speak in tongues by simply trying to roll sounds over your mouth enough until it actually becomes a learned behavior. It is therefore identical to those who practice animistic religions around the world. Experts in the field of linguistics have diligently studied this phenomenon over many years, and these utterances lack the basic elements of language as a system of coherent communication. Instead, if we want to speak of it linguistically, It's unintelligible babbling that exhibits, in the words of one linguist, superficial phonological similarity to language without having consistent sigtagmatic structure. (laughs) Isn't that a good word? And that is not systematically derived from or related to a known language. So, all that to say, the problem at Corinth with these kinds of utterances was something that Paul wanted to warn against that he wanted them to speak in tongues, but that these tongues were, in fact, 
languages. Now, some people want to argue that the tongues in the Bible is a heavenly language not subject to the rules of linguistics. But this argument fails when you analyze the tongues speaking in religions all over the world because no matter what the religion is, there's, any, there's no coherent language features that suggest any actual communication of meaning. So, conclusion. <clears throat> Whatever tongue-speaking was in the New Testament, we have no clear example of it today. The fact that the Corinthians were steeped in a culture of ecstatic religious experiences in paganism makes it unsurprising that there were problems in terms of the worship of this nature in the Corinthian church. Now, all of the church fathers speak of tongues as languages. So, it's important for us to distinguish from what we have thought we mean by the word tongues and what it actually means is languages. Now, I'll grant that there may be some language of angels, but it will bear the science of linguistics as well. So, the key, a key issue is not what happens. A key issue is not how intense we experience it. The key issue for Paul is the affirmation of correct theology. Again, 1 Corinthians 12.2, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols however you were led. So I want you to understand. And then he goes into it, which we talked about several weeks ago. Be careful that you're not led astray by your prior associations with paganism. Your prior experience is not a guide to true spirituality. And then again in chapter 12, verse 28, you had this list of various spiritual gifts, different from the list that was in chapter 12, verse 10, different from the other lists that you find in the New Testament. Now, most Christians will agree that at least some of these gifts no longer exist. So if that's true, that some of these gifts no longer exist, then on what basis do we decide which gifts persist and which ones do not? So if you look at chapter 12, verse 28, you see the first one there is apostles. Now apostleship is one that most recognize no longer exists. Why? because there are no more apostles who witnessed the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There are some these days who see that contradiction, <clears throat> and therefore they will even name people as apostles in their churches. But if that were true, then what those apostles said and wrote would be as authoritative as if Peter, Paul, or John were here. And Paul himself said that the resurrected Jesus appeared to him, quote, last of all, 1 Corinthians 15, 8. So, almost all Christians admit that at least that gift, the gift of apostleship, no longer exists. Now, the fact that there are no apostles shows that God does not intend everything that was part of the early church to be part of our church. Now, this is also a comfort to us, isn't it, in that we now know for sure that the Bible we have in our hands is the final authorized revelation from God to us. We aren't going to get any books added to the Bible. 
So the question is not, are all the spiritual gifts in the New Testament supposed to exist in today's church? We already know that's not true. The question is, which gifts continue and which do not, and why? Now, this is an important question, but let me just mute that a little bit by saying that it's not one, it's not a question on which one's salvation or spiritual maturity is based. I know immature and mature believers on both sides of the question. What should not be said is that one needs a particular spiritual gift to be truly mature, nor can we say if someone claims a spiritual gift that has ceased that they're immature or that they're doing the work of the evil one. Those are steps of excess in this debate that do far more harm than good. Now, I believe that a good case can be made for what our statement of faith says, that the sign gifts have ceased. Now, why are they called sign gifts? Well, they're sign gifts because they are spiritual gifts intended to confirm the truthfulness of the Christian message. That is, they signify that the Christian message of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection for our sins is true. So, for example, in Acts chapter 3, where Peter and John heal the lame man at the temple, Peter explains that the healing is designed as a sign to confirm the Christian message to repent and believe in Jesus. Sign gifts are simply gifts that demonstrate in a miraculously powerful way that the Christian message is true. So what are the sign gifts? Well, they're gifts that supernaturally demonstrate the truthfulness of the Christian message. Prophecy is one. The Old Testament prophets predicted stuff, not primarily because they wanted to be sensational. No, they predicted things to demonstrate that their message to repent and believe in the God of the Bible would be believed. So consider Jeremiah chapter 28. You have this false prophet, Hananiah, who says, yeah, the Babylonians aren't going to conquer us. Everything's going to be great. He's going to save us just like back in the days of Hezekiah. At the last minute, we're going to be saved. And Jeremiah says, no, you're a false prophet. And here's how we'll all know that you're a false prophet. Before the year is out, you're going to die. And then it says, at the end of the year, Hananiah died. <laughs> the predictive nature was to demonstrate the truthfulness of Jeremiah's message. Miracles and healings, likewise, are sign gifts to show that the messenger and the message is authentically from God. Consider Elijah and the widow at Zarephath. Elijah raises her son from the dead, and the woman's response is this, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. The miracle was a sign to show the truthfulness of Elijah's message. Now, Tongues in Acts chapter 2 were people speaking in known languages where over 3,000 Jews, so how is it that we hear every one of us in our own language, gathered in Jerusalem at Pentecost, 
at this Shavuot, at this feast from all over the world. And they hear the apostles speaking in these languages, and they repent, and they put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is going to say that tongues are… Paul's also going to say that tongues are a sign for unbelievers. But But these tongues must be understood in some way, or else the sign is not pointing to anything. Now, we all love and long for miracles. But the stark fact is that for most of history, what we have had are no miracles with only brief insertions of the miraculous at significance of moments where God is communicating something very important. For example, there are no recorded miracles between the fall of Adam and the flood of Noah, a period of thousands of years. There were no miracles between, recorded between Noah and Abraham, except for the miracle of confusion of languages at Babel, which was a negative rather than a positive sign. Again, a time of about 400 years. There were no miracles for the 400 years of slavery in Egypt. The time of miracles in the Old Testament were rare moments of interruption of long years of very ordinary life. There were no miracles in the 400 years between the Old and New Testaments, unless you want to count Hanukkah, which I do not. And then suddenly, John the Baptist comes on the scene, and he was a force. But interestingly, he did not do any miracles. All he did was preach the baptisms of of repentance and say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, pointing to the Messiah. In fact, in John chapter 10, we, we read that many came to John the Baptist, or came to Jesus and said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And then... And then comes our master Jesus, and oh, an explosion of miracles. He did them, yes, because he loved people and he wanted to alleviate suffering. But not every sick person in Galilee and Judea was healed. Why this explosion of miracles? You know, when John the Baptist was put in prison in Matthew chapter 11, he sent his disciples to Jesus and he says, are you the one? Are you the Messiah or are we looking for somebody else? And Jesus answers, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Jesus is saying his signs, his miracles demonstrate that he was God come in the flesh. In fact, all through the Gospel of John, we see this connection between the signs, the miracles Jesus did, and the purpose of the miracles to confirm that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Consider John 5.36. 
The testimony I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, this is miraculous signs, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The purpose of the signs, I'm from the Father. John 6, 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So the sign confirmed the truthfulness of who Jesus is. John 7, 31, many of the people believed him and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this one has done? We know who he is because of what he's done. John 10, 24, Jesus, the Jews gathered around him and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, if you're the king, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not part of my sheep. You see how Jesus connected his works to signify as a sign for who he is and what he did. Now, the very early church had these same sign miracles to show that the Christian message is true. So speaking in tongues, miracles, prophecies, and healing were bursting forth from the early church to show that the Christian message was true. I think Hebrews was written pretty late in New Testament history, and by then, I think most of those sign gifts had disappeared, so look at how the author of Hebrews describes this in the past tense. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, the salvation we have in Christ? And it was declared, past tense, at first by the Lord, so who Jesus is, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. That is, that these sign gifts, both done by Jesus and the early church, were to attest to the truthfulness of the Christian message. Acts chapter 2, G Peter at Pentecost says the same thing right at the beginning of this miraculous work of the early church. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Or Acts 14.3, they remained a long time, it's talking about Paul and Barnabas, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But <clears throat> these sign miracles were not intended to last through all of church history, nor were they intended to be the normal work of the Christian. Instead, just as happened in the past, miracles occurred to verify a message. And once the message was verified, the miracles disappear. Consider that even at the end of the apostolic age, the miracles were disappearing. Toward the end of his life and ministry, about eight years after he wrote 1 Corinthians, Paul tells Timothy to drink a little wine for the sake of his stomach and frequent ailments. If miracles were normalized, why did Paul not heal his younger friend and fellow missionary? Paul himself had a thorn in the flesh. 
Why would he not heal himself or another with the gift of healings and miracles have compassion on the suffering apostle? No, the time was passing away for these sign gifts. In fact, we see the testimony of believers through the ages to the fact that these sign gifts disappeared. So writing in the 19th century, B.B. Warfield says, miracles do not appear on the pages of Scripture vagrantly here and there. In other words, they're not just happening willy-nilly and elsewhere and differently without any assignable reason. They belong to revelation periods and appear only when God is speaking to His people through accredited messengers, declaring His gracious purposes. Their abundant display in the apostolic church is the mark of the richness of the apostolic age in Revelation. And when this Revelation period closed, the period of miracle working had passed by also as a matter of course. Or Martin Luther. This visible outpouring of the Holy Spirit was necessary to the establishment of the early church, as were also the miracles that accompanied the gift of the Holy Ghost. Once the church had been established and properly advertised by these miracles, the visible appearance of the Holy Ghost ceased. Or John Calvin, the gift of healing, like the rest of the miracles which the Lord willed to be brought forth for a time, has vanished away in order to make the preaching of the gospel marvelous forever. Jonathan Edwards, of the extraordinary gifts, they were given in order to the founding and establishing of the church in the world. But since the canon of the Scriptures has been completed and the Christian church fully founded and established, these extraordinary gifts have ceased. Charles Spurgeon, those earlier miraculous gifts have departed from us. Now, this isn't just the testimony of relatively recent Christians, and by relatively recent, I'm talking about from 1500 on to the, uh, 2023, but this is the testimony of believers that go way back, okay? So, Augustine in the 5th century writes this, in the earliest times, the Holy Ghost fell upon them that believed, and they spake with tongues which they had not learned as the, Holy Spirit, as the Spirit gave them utterance. These were signs adapted to the time, for there behooved to be that betokening of the Holy Spirit in all tongues to show that the gospel of God was to run through all tongues over the whole earth. That thing was done for a betokening, in other words, to show as a sign, and it passed away." Even earlier than that, John Chrysostom, who was in the fourth century, <clears throat> now by the way, his name means golden mouth or golden tongue. I just think, man, it'd be great to be known as Pastor Scott Chrysostom. He, he did all kinds of sermons. He was a great preacher, and he preached successively through books of the Bible. Here is a sermon from a sermon that he preached in 1 Corinthians. Concerning the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians, this whole place, he's looking at this. He's going, this whole thing is very obscure, but the obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts referred to and by their cessation, being such as then used to occur, but now no longer take place. So by the time you get to the 300s, they're going, we don't know what this is really because we aren't having it happen. It has 
ceased. <clears throat> if these gifts have indeed passed away, then demanding that they appear creates all kinds of problems. We have to be careful. Demanding that gifts that have disappeared appear can create all kinds of problems. Let me share with you a few problems that get created. First, quite often what happens when we demand that sign gifts appear is that they become a measurement of spiritual maturity and define spiritual maturity. In other words, the way we know that you're spiritually mature is if you have a demonstration of these signed gifts. Let me give one illustration. Uh, my wife's uncle was a leader in a church that was uh, uh, believed in the gift of speaking in tongues. In fact, one of the requirements for them to become an elder in the church was to have spoken in tongues. Well, Carol's uncle hadn't spoken in tongues, despite the fact that he'd been a part of the church for decades, and they really, really, really wanted him to be on the leadership team. And so they gather together and they lay hands on him, and at that point, Carol's uncle said something that nobody understood what he said. And they go, there it is, he's spoken in tongues. You see, once you define spiritual maturity by a sign gift, you have a problem, don't you, of almost having to create the event. A second problem you have is that you have a really difficult time explaining almost all of church history because most of church history has no sign gifts. Does that mean that the church was completely out to lunch and didn't have anything going on for it whatsoever? There are some who will argue that. Seems to me to be a problem. A third problem is that when we say that these sign gifts are normative or just an ordinary thing for the church, then what happens when you don't get the miracle? Well, quite often you are blamed for a lack of faith. If you only believed, then you would receive your miracle. Or worse, you find yourself in a place of fear. When we lived in Israel, just um, Carol was part of a Bible study with some um, women who were very strong charismatics. By the way, I think that fellowship with believers is a good thing, whether we agree on this topic or not, okay? That's a good thing to do. You want to rub shoulders with believers all over the place, right? Especially when you are in a culture that is increasingly minority Christian, anybody who believes in Jesus and trusts in Him to forgive them their sin, I don't care what you think about, you know, sign gifts, you're my brother and sister, Right? But here's the problem. Carol is seven or eight months pregnant. She's having severe skin problems, and she's in this Bible study. These well-intentioned ladies laid hands on her. They want to heal Carol's issue, and one person had a word of knowledge. The word of knowledge was, oh, there's something wrong with your back. You have problems with your back. Carol goes, no, I don't have any problems with my back. And then 
Another person says, oh, it must be the baby's back. Now think for a moment telling a seven or eight month pregnant lady with her first baby, you know, I'm predicting with my word of knowledge that the baby has back problem. Now if the baby is, comes out normal, then they can say that their prayer healed it, right? <laughs> it's like plausible deniability. But I just want to suggest to you that there's a problem when we say that a lack of miracles, a lack of faith, or worse, you see. And then the last thing that I'll just say, there's a number of other problems, but the last one that I'll suggest is the problem of trying to pretend that a miracle occurred when it didn't. There's all kinds of efforts to try to justify something as a miracle when in fact it isn't a miracle. And then you end up with this world where you're trying to like live in both the world of reality and the world of your fantasy justification, that's a very scary place to live. My brother-in-law and I one time were watching a word faith person on television. By the way, those people have spread all over the world in terms of satellite television. A lot of the theology of the third world is derived here, and which is sad. And this person, this evangelist said, at the beginning of the meeting that we're watching on TV, tonight we are going to see a 75-foot lightning bolt come down from heaven to this room. And I looked at my brother-in-law, Tom, and he looked at me and I said, we're on. We're going to watch this. And the, the program went on for two hours, and there was no 75-foot lightning bolt. But you know what there was at the end of the program? They said, the wonderful things we've seen tonight are the beginning manifestations of the 75-foot lightning bolt that is going to come down. You see, there's a problem of trying to pretend that a miracle has occurred when one did not. Now, let's be clear. I'm not saying that miracles cannot or do not occur. They do. But they are rare by definition, and miracles are not the result of people having the spiritual gift of miracles. The key periods of the miraculous, Moses and Joshua, from the mid-1400s uh, B.C. to early 1300s B.C., it's a period of about 65 years, God did amazing miracles. A second window of miracles where they were common was the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Again, a period of about 65 years. And the third time of miracles was with Christ and His apostles. And again, a time of about 65 or 70 years. And so, what we need to recognize is that these gifts were in place in the early church to confirm the truthfulness of the message. And with the confirmation of the truth of that message, the completion of the Word of God, and the maturing of the church, those gifts ceased. And that doesn't mean that God is less alive today than He was then. It means that He is at work in different ways. It means that we have a treasure in this book that the early church did not possess.
So, that's the introduction. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 14, and we'll look at verses 1 through 5 here. Uh, pursue love. See, so the first thing is not these sign gifts. Pursue love. Then earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy for, prophesy. for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So we're to follow love and desire the greater things of the Spirit. Speaking in a tongue or other language has benefit. I actually believe that these are languages. The word tongue is simply the word language that's consistent with the science of linguistics, I will grant that there may be heavenly languages because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, I, if I spoke in the language of angels. But a person who speaks in tongues but does not himself have the gift of interpretation is not speaking, verse 2, in, to people, but speaking to God. And the content of the tongues is mysteries in the Spirit. The very purpose of the tongues, verse 4, is to build oneself up, while the one who prophesies builds up the whole church. It's these four verses that are why people think of tongues as ecstatic languages. And I can see the point, but there's nothing here that suggests, however, that they must be ecstatic languages that defy or do not possess the science of linguistics, the very use of the word tongue means that we're dealing with languages here, which must be subject to the science of language. Paul says that prophecy, infallible words from God, has greater benefit for the whole body than speaking languages that no one understands. Why? Well, the audience is to people, not to the individual. The purpose is for strengthening and edification and building people up in their faith and encouraging and exhorting and appealing and comforting them and caring for them. Now, there are two ways that this gift of prophecy operated in the Bible. One was looking at what God had said in the past, comparing that to current circumstances pronouncing a blessing or judgment on obedience or disobedience, and giving counsel on what to do. A second way that this gift of prophecy operated in the Bible is giving new revelation from God, generally including a specific prediction that validates or invalidates the prophecy. Now, of those two ways, with the maturing of the church, the death of the apostles, the completion of the Word of God, there's no need for the sign gift aspect of that prophecy. As such, only this first part of this gift operates today. That is, there's no new books being added to the Bible. Now, I believe there are going to come two prophets in the tribulation who will be giving new revelation from God, but that's a message for another time. Instead, let's focus on this. There are gifted people in the church who can look at what God said in the past, compare it to current circumstances, 
pronounce blessing or judgment based on God's Word, and then give counsel on what to do. Two people that I see that have been particularly gifted as prophets to the church are Tim Keller, who recently passed away, and the, mo- mo- the, the one I see most clearly in this was Francis Schaeffer. For the sake of the church, there's a priority of this kind of prophecy over tongues. It says, I want you all to speak in tongues, but more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Prophecy is intelligible, and therefore it edifies everybody. In Paul's view, unknown languages, even interpreted, are not the surest evidence of the continuing work of the Spirit in the church. Rather, it's the clear Word of God. Well, we're out of time, so we got through one point. But let me give you some applications. First, seek the Lord, not the sign gifts. There are people who will tell you that the sign gifts are the evidence of spiritual maturity. They are not. It is seeking the Lord. Seek the Lord, not the sign gifts. Secondly, treasure the gospel, not spiritual experience. You know, you can tell me all kinds of experiences, and I'm not going to sit, stand in front. You could come up to me afterwards and say, I had this experience, I had this. I'm just going to nod my head and go, hmm, fascinating. I can't validate or invalidate your experience. But what I can do is say, the gospel is what must be treasured. We must treasure the gospel over any experience we have. Jesus came to die for our sins, and He rose from the dead. Treasure that. Lastly, live boldly for Christ, not waiting for your miracle. There are people who will tell you, what you need to just do is sit here and just wait for your miracle. And you're in a suffering moment, and of course, you want your miracle, and so you'll sit there waiting and waiting and waiting. And you miss out on all the opportunity you have to live boldly for Christ. The greatest testimony for Christ I ever see in my life are people who are suffering and never get their miracle, and they're holding on to Christ. That is a testimony. And if we're thinking that we wait for our miracle before we move boldly for the Lord, you could end up waiting your whole life and never make any impact for Christ. So live boldly for Christ rather than waiting for your miracle. doesn't mean the miracle won't happen or that you won't praise the Lord when it comes. But that's not how God wants the believer to live. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to seek you, not the signed gifts, to treasure the gospel, not our experience, to live boldly for Christ rather than waiting for some miracle. We do thank you that you are a supernatural God who does miracles, and we can pray for them, and we do pray for them. But those things are not the measure 
of the maturity of the church or of the individual. It is rather the one who holds fast to this wonderful truth that the greatest miracle that we will ever witness is a dead, ruined sinner by faith in Jesus Christ being transformed by the Holy Spirit into a saint that will enjoy you forever. Help us daily to treasure the gospel in our own lives. And may this be ever the theme of our church as we seek to be worshipers maturing in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.